you're ready to stop submitting basic applications and winging your interview for your next nursing role, whether you're a graduate nurse or a seasoned healthcare professional, we'd love to exclusively invite you to our secret nurse growth hub, where you can get all of the support to apply, interview and land your next nursing role completely free. All of the resources that we've shared and created over the last three years that have helped 3,000 plus nurses internationally apply, interview and land their next nursing role. So what are you waiting for? Come and join us today. It's completely free. LiamCaswell.com forward slash NGH. Come and join the Nurse Growth Hub today and let's make applying, interviewing and landing your next nursing role easy. you're not loving it if there's not something in the role that's giving you joy just go knock on another door there is an absolute workforce shortage there is no reason not to tap into every opportunity you know have a crack if you go as a casual or you've got the luxury of shopping around or as an agency nurse you've got the option to do that so you know I don't regret any part of my little nursing career and here I am the subtitle of all of that Hello, you are listening to the High Performance Nursing Podcast with me, Liam Caswell, where I help clinicians just like you take control of their careers and remove all the things stopping you from achieving your biggest goals. Let's dive in. Hello and welcome back to the High Performance Nursing Podcast. I am so excited that you are here today. We have an incredible guest, a close nursing peer all the way from the ACT in Australia, Rachel Bilton Simic, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I am fabulous. And, you know, given the time we've taken to actually get on screen together, I think it's pretty spectacular. <laughs> You'll see, I'm, I don't know if anyone can see, but I've actually got Rachel from Ngunnawal land. And you're all probably thinking, what on earth is that? Is that where the Oompalumpas live? No, it isn't. So, Australia, as you know, is a colonised country, and the ACT is the territory that houses Canberra, which, unlike a lot of people think Sydney's the capital of Australia, but Canberra's <laughs> the centre of Australia. And Australia, pre colonisation, was divided up into up to 650 areas, all based on our first peoples, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people of this country. So I've made a point of putting Ngunnawal land because in this country, we are getting better at acknowledging our first peoples. And who am I? And why would you possibly think I'm exciting? I've got a great voice for radio. So if you are looking up my nose, I just explained to Liam, I wanted to be authentic, but I was hoping to wear a little bit more makeup than I am today. But anyway, you look I started my nursing journey. Thank you. I actually started my nursing journey probably before many of you were born. So I actually started my nursing journey in 1985. I had just graduated from what is sixth form, I guess, in most countries. And I was faced with what most of us are faced with. What should we do? I got into uni, but there were some financial constraints around that. I got into the Navy, which I still laugh at. And I got into nursing. Now, I got into nursing on a Tuesday and I got into the Navy on Wednesday. As it turned out, nursing meant that I would stay in the Canberra and I actually had a boyfriend at the time so if you're out there and you do things because of your boyfriend or your girlfriend 
hello, that's me. So I stayed in Canberra. I was very lucky. I believe I was very lucky because I actually did the second last hospital-based training in the ACT. And it meant that, yes, we were educated in the classroom, as you all are at university, but it also meant that we got to spend time in two hospitals across Canberra. One was called Royal Canberra and had a paediatric unit and a few other things that were unique to that hospital. And then, of course, the Canberra Hospital was in those days, Woden Valley, and it had other services like mental health and rehab. So we were very lucky. We got to experience two hospitals, two different kind of environments, but we had the safety and I think probably more camaraderie than many of you probably get to have at university in that we were a bunch of people, we're all the same age, predominantly female. We were living on hospital grounds, so we had subsidised accommodation, you know, basically cafeteria food. We were getting paid less than the dole or the unemployment benefits, but at the same time, it was very immersive. And I think that immersion, certainly for me, I joined nursing two weeks before my 18th birthday. And so I think it was so immersive, it actually moulded some of my personality. There are things about me that are innately grown out of that space. Towards the end of the three-year hospital training, I'd been ill at some point and I had to do some makeup time. That's not time putting makeup on. <laughs> that was time doing extra. And I chose to go to the oncology ward, which, of course, all my friends thought I was bonkers, but I was fascinated was fascinated by this amazing disease and the treatments, of course, back in the 80s were pretty rudimentary. While I was in that oncology ward, I actually met some people who later on in my career became my, my colleagues. But what I also saw was some pretty unmanaged deaths. I saw death and dying in ways that didn't feel right. It felt like we could be doing more. In fact, I have to honestly say because we didn't have debriefing, we didn't talk about self-care, we didn't consider that the events that we were participating in were traumatic. I finished my training on a bit of a lot. I don't know if I can go back into a hospital again. It's a horrible place. So I actually went and work in, worked in a pharmacist. That was cool. You know, still people, still, and it was interesting. But at the same time, I knew that I wanted to go back into the hospital setting. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. When I was growing up, there wasn't new grad program. So I sort of created my own, as many of us did. We joined nursing agencies. And I'd set off around the countryside. I decided I needed to see something other than Canberra. I was probably bored with my boyfriend, if the truth be known. And off I went to Melbourne and I signed up with an agency and I had such a wealth of experiences. They were terrifying. I was thrown in the deep end. I often didn't know really if I was doing any good. But I didn't get into trouble. That was good. And I was also able, I found myself able to advocate for myself when I was being asked to do things that were either dodgy or illegal. And, you know, I kind of realised that there was a nobility in having this registration and that registration meant something to me. And I wasn't going to let other people put me in situations where I didn't feel safe. I inevitably, because I am a bit of an oddball, I ended up doing a whole string of work at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne and I ended up in the basement, as you do. I ended up in the basement with the patients. Back then, nobody knew what to do with. So these were young, often adolescents. They had cystic fibrosis. They had anorexia nervosa. 
which as you know is an eating disorder, and they really didn't know what to do with these young people. These illnesses were chronic. Uh, they weren't making much progress. And so this sort of chronic ward was created in the basement. And, of course, I did night shift because I was young in those days. Mm. <laughs> and I figured you might as well work as you're going to party. So I, um, so I had a bit of fun. I worked with some amazing nurses who were incredibly patient, I think, with the, you know, agency nurse. And I had a whole range of experiences. I had nurses who were really inclusive and were really happy to explain things. But I also worked in places where people wouldn't even tell me where the met trolley was, mm. let alone the toilet. So I learned very quickly in a strange place, there were some key things I needed to know. I needed to know where the toilet was, but I particularly needed to know what trolley was, the oxygen, the medication, and all of those sorts of things. So I, I became quite proficient at kind of asking for what I needed, but also at the same time, not being too much of a scaredy cat that I didn't get in there and kind of get my feet wet. So I did some agency nursing for a while. Uh, Australia is a huge country, and back then, each it's a federation. So there's different states and different territories. And so different rules apply to different parts of the country. So I ended up in Western Australia, which back then had been golden staff free. Basically, anyone who was coming from the east had to demonstrate that they were golden staff free and it took about three months. Well, I couldn't be I couldn't be bothered, really. It was a lot of paperwork. So I went and worked in a, I think, where did I work? Oh, I worked in a hotel or something. Anyway, I flew back to Central Australia sort of bummed my way back to Melbourne. And by this time, I had a huge credit card bill. And there's only one thing that's good for a credit card bill, and that's not duty. So I signed up with the agency. I signed up with the agency. I had these, at this point, I phoned a friend. She had a car. I had somewhere to stay and a job. So, you know, so we worked in all kinds of places. And the agency were very good. They would send us as a pair. And one of the moments I do remember is there are some old kind of hospitals in Melbourne and they're very Victorian. So there's, you know, mm. great corridors with beds. I don't know if they're still like that. And, of course, the whole floor was divided into left and right and there were glass doors. And I went up to my glass door and opened it because all of the staff had gone on meal break and I was in. And so I had my 15 patients. And at the same time, my friend had come scurrying up the other corridor, opened the glass and went, oh, shit. I'm on my own too. And suddenly we realised two young women were actually in charge of this entire corridor. I did tell the patients none of them were allowed to have a cardiac event. And if anyone needed a poo, they till the others got back, which went to the patients thought that was hilarious. As you know, often the desire to defecate precedes a cardiac event. So it wasn't my aversion to poo. It was just I didn't want to deal with that. Anyway, I made my way back to Canberra and I actually thought, you know what, I, I want to see what nurses do outside of hospitals. And I took, in the beginning, it was a pretty dull job. It was actually as an occupational health nurse at mm -hmm. the local kind of, you know, education, polytechnic, whatever you want to call it. It was boring as whatnot. And I, I realised I'd, I'd been employed because this particular campus had audience, all apprentice mechanics and there'd been a fatal incident. And somehow they thought having a nurse on the campus would stop a fatal incident. Worries that. Anyway, so I realised that the acute, you know, thing that they were looking for was a bit silly. 
because there was a hospital around the corner and triple zero and they could definitely do a lot better job than I could. Mm-hmm. So I actually reworked the job and I started to do a lot of health promotion. A lot of these uh, apprentices were 16. They had no idea about sexually transmitted diseases. They had no idea about how to clean their bomb. They were all getting tonsils. There was lots of young women who this was their first time out of school and were feeling very uncomfortable with their, you know, various bodily functions. We also had a cohort of students who had special needs. And in those days, there wasn't really much support for them. So the staff didn't know how to deal with an epileptic seizure, for example. And I started to overlap into all sorts of things. I learned how to do hearing tests. I learned how to do, I did blood pressure monitoring. I did lots of health promotion, eating healthy days, all sorts of things. And I think I didn't realise it at the time, but that was actually quite progressive Mm. because my, the next person that came along kind of went back to just handing out Panadol and tampons, (laughs) which I would think would be very dumb. Anyway, I lasted a wee while there. Now, what did I do then? Oh, then I decided to uh, run away to Tasmania. There was some personal stuff there, but anyway, ran away to Tasmania. I took up a job at the Launceston General and I was a bit of a dog's body for a while. Always a great place to start at a hospital, by the way. Join the casual pool because you can go and have a bit of a sticky beak. You can look at the equipment. You can get a feel for the staff. You can get a vibe for the kind of nursing that you're doing. And me, of course, being an oddball, I ended up in the voluntary psych ward where I could get my medication for free. No, I'm kidding. It was a wonderful, it was a wonderful space. And the camaraderie, I think that's what got me there was, yes, I'm fascinated with mental health nursing, but the nurses there were obviously very progressive and really trying to think up new ways other than just poking pills into people's faces. It also required a lot of rapport building relationships, communication, all sorts of things. And that was kind of my jam. So I stuck around there till I had a few babies. Having babies always upsets those things. I made the decision to not have babies and work at the same time. That's my personal decision. I wanted to spend time with my babies, which is just as well because then I ended up a single mum. And for those of you out there that might be a single parent, you know that that is not an easy gig. Nursing skills were useful, but, you know, there was no way I could manage shift work and all those things. I ended up back in Canberra. I actually started a degree in office management. (laughs) I was going to crack up (laughs) because I was concerned as a single mum, I wouldn't be able. So I started a few units, did communication. Luckily, I did a bit of IT. That was quite helpful. (laughs) But in the summer of that year, I decided to go and do a, like a sort of a, I guess like a placement or whatever you want to call it with this big company that made millions of dollars as in the office manager role. Well, after a week of that, I was ready to jump off a cliff. It was so boring. And it didn't matter how much money this company made, I did not get excited and I thought, well, this will never do. I can't live like this. I had, just by chance, decided to earn a bit of pocket money. So I ended up working in the endoscopy clinic at one of the hospitals and it was a beautiful place. The hours really suited, but the doctors were wonderful. They wanted to share you. They taught you heaps. It was really inclusive. We had a manager who, I don't know if she'd done this on purpose, but pretty much all of us were single mums. So our CNC really took on probably 
these days it probably would be frowned upon, but she was quite maternal and there was quite a few of them. And the doctors were very, very good with us. We learnt lots. I found the technology exciting. And obviously the office management wasn't really taking off. (laughs) (laughs) So I went to see a nursing lecturer that I knew. She'd been one of my hospital tutors and she now was uh, lecturing at the university. And I went to see her and I said, Sandra, I said, love, I said, pet, what am I going to do with my life? And she said, why aren't you doing a degree? And I said, oh, well, you know, I'm a single mama, couldn't possibly do a degree. And she said, hang on a minute. And, of course, hospital training counted towards it. I'd actually accidentally on purpose gone to uni in Tasmania and done a unit in mental health, so that counted. That was actually a post-grad unit. I don't know how I did that. I didn't actually have a computer. I had this sort of weird thing that was like a typewriter, but it wasn't. And it was so poor I couldn't afford the textbook. But anyway, you can do anything if you put your mind to it. So she said, look, you only need to do like four units and you'll have your bachelor in nursing. So that's what I did. And it was fabulous to go back to study. I think, you know, uh, I think it was good to have the university study. I learned lots about, you know, all sorts of things, evidence-based practice, Mm -hmm. communication, all sorts of cool stuff. And, of course, I graduated with a Bachelor of Nursing as well as my hospital nursing. My endoscopy career had kind of taken off because that particular unit had now become a day procedure unit. So I started doing scrubbing and scouting and recovery and admissions and all kinds of things. Finally, somebody asked me to do an anaesthetic. Well, I have to tell you, that did put me to sleep. No pun intended. Literally. After doing this, and I'd sort of, you know, as many of us do in nursing, sometimes we can be a bit people-pleasing and I'd been asked and it didn't really interest me. The fabulous thing is, though, I did learn a lot about semi-conscious and unconscious and ventilation and intubation and drugs and pain management. So I actually acquired much more than I probably realised at the time. Anyway, one fine day, I thought, this will never do. I'm a bit sick of being stuck inside. So I went and a nurse who was running a community health service. And I said, I need to do something different. She said, would you like to do the hospital, not the hospital, the community nursing role, fill in, you know, someone was on leave or something. And I said, rightio. So I took leave without pay from a little theatre job. Everyone was a bit surprised. And I trotted off to be a community nurse. And the funny part about that is, I'd never driven an automatic car. So the first shift of trying to be a community nurse was actually trying to work out how to start the car because, as you know, you've got to have it in park and I'd put it in drive. So that was a bit hectic. The nurse that owned the car had, of course, stripped the car of any maps and in those days there was no Google Maps. So the first thing I had to do was go to the service station to buy a map. I love yeah, it. was fun, wasn't it? <laughs> and I didn't know, but these community nurses had given me the what was the worst shift. So it was from nine in the morning till six at night. So it was the diabetics was insulin in the morning and insulin at night, peak hour traffic. Not that we really have peak hour in Canberra, but anyway, it was pretty full on. I thought it was fantastic because suddenly I was in people's homes mm. and I could see their budgie and I could see their kids and I could see stuff. And I realised that my strong sense of respect, like valuing that I was in people's homes, like, and I liked the dynamic. Like when you're in a hospital ward, you tend to, you know, a lot of the time people don't knock on the door, they just walk in. There's no conversation about, should I, can I sit here? Can I put the light on? Should I turn? But when you're in someone's home, the dynamic's quite different and you do in fact become a guest. 
you are a guest, you are there to do something for that person or with that person. And I loved it. I just loved the dynamic. So I quit my job at the theatre, in the operating theatre. The, the head nurse rang me and she said, what would it take to have you stay with us? And I said, it would take an increase in pay and the opportunity to stay home most days. And she said, well, I can't do that. I thought, thank God for that. So anyway, off I went into community nursing. It was hilarious the first few days. I made some pretty interesting mistakes. So those of you that work in theatre know that you get a theatre list, don't you? You get, you know, first one's going to be an epectomy sick. And the list is quite specific and that's how everyone does it. Well, in community nursing, you also get a list. And unbeknownst to me, it was not specific. So I followed the list to the letter like a good little theatre nurse. And, of course, one lady rang up my boss and said, why am I getting a shower at 2 o'clock in the afternoon? And I said, well, what's on the list? I knew there was this, there was this new level of autonomy. I could actually decide who I would see, and, you know. And, of course, the people that smoked and had kitty litter, you'd see them last because you didn't want to smell like that, for the, you know, and you, an autonomy part. Bit of autonomy, a bit hard when you want to piddle. Uh, mm-hmm. Luckily, Google Maps did come up with a toiletry app. Mm-hmm. That's a bit rough. And McDonald's, always good. <laughs> anyway, so community nursing, fabulous, having a wonderful time, learning lots, getting making mistakes, getting mm-hmm. things wrong. There were things I didn't know I didn't know I was doing wrong, but my team would tell me and I would go and learn what I really needed to learn. Mm-hmm. Anyway. That team also happened to have a community palliative care team. And being young and daft, they said, here, do you want to go and see some palliative care patients? I thought, all right. And I loved it because suddenly the communication, the psychosocial stuff I'd done in mental health, the stuff around anaesthetics and pain relief, my deep conviction that people needed to die better and being in their own home and being a guest, all of those things kind of fell into place. And then, of course, as in my community nursing role in the particular region I was working, we had a gentleman who was in his 30s. He was dying of AIDS and full-blown HIV. And he did not want to be referred to palliative care because he had all of those preconceived notions that he would be written off and it was all about dying. So... The GP, myself, and the nurse that shared my line decided we would look after him, but we would consult with the specialist palliative care team and kind of support him at home. And this man was, apologies if you're Belgian, but this man was a very cranky Belgian man. He probably was cranky because he had full-blown hate. I don't think that was helping. He was my first needle stick. And, of course, when I had to report to the Occupational Exposure Unit, the uh, infectious diseases professor of the day said, darling, this man has a strain of HIV that doesn't respond to antivirals or not the ones we had back then. So that was a bit of a, I think I pooed my pants. I did go home with a very large bag of condoms, which I think worried my husband at the time. Worried I was going to, anyway, all's well that ends well. I'm pleased to know that our occupational exposure is handled a bit, bit more promptly. In those days, you had to wait six weeks. That particular professor put me on three lots of antivirals, given that his strain was particularly resistant, and I have never felt so sick in my life. You learn from these things. And I went, gosh, all those poor people living out there with HIV, managing their viral load with these bloody drugs, feeling like this, to me, it was probably as hideous as chemo. I was Mm. vomiting. I felt dreadful. 
One in particular smelled like fried onions. Put me off fried onions for a long time. Anyway, I finished the course of my drugs. I didn't get through the bag of condoms, but I didn't get HIV and and everything was okay. But lots to learn, you know, yeah. when you make a mistake, you know, things to learn. Anyway, Reinhold, his journey continued and finally they separated out the teams and I chose to go with the palliative care team. And I stayed in the palliative care team for probably about 11 years. And two of those years I did as after hours, so a sole practitioner, essentially. Canberra's not a huge place, but it, this is the tyranny of distance. And so, you know, that was quite a challenge. Lots of problem solving, lots of, you know, having to kind of make some tough decisions. And I probably made a few mistakes, but nobody, well, lots of people die. Can't really say that in palliative care. But uh, I think I'm really proud of the fact that I I have a collection of lots of little cards and little comments and things that are were incredibly positive. The Canberra community were very kind to me. My oddballness actually proved to be a bonus. It meant that often clients that others wouldn't. I used to see one man at the bus stop because he was too embarrassed to have me in his hostel environment. He, he didn't want me in the hostel, he, so we'd meet at the bus stop or at the coffee shop and I would do an assessment. Often the patients who were perhaps a little more interesting than others would seem to wash up on my shores and that didn't bother me at all. When I started in palliative care, once again, very lucky, a medical director who was genuinely interested in teaching new people. But you know what? I should give myself more credit because I think I had the intellectual curiosity to knock on his door and go, hey, can you explain to me why you prescribe that drug? Or can you explain to me why we're doing this, that and the other with this patient and something else with another patient? And he would go through it and he would explain it. So, you know, got to take your in- intelligent curiosity and don't be afraid to knock on doors and just go, hi, can you explain something to me? I think that's a really powerful tool. And, you know, I, I wouldn't say I'm any brighter than anyone else. I certainly don't have academic prowess. I- I've- I'm no fan of academic writing. But ask questions, mm-hmm. you know, if something's kind of going, mm, what is that? Why is that? Unfortunately, in the course of 11 years of providing palliative care in people's homes, I'd also taken on a second job, as you do, because I found I really loved teaching and I had an opportunity to teach enrolled nurses at the local college and they needed someone to teach the palliative care unit. So it was a nice synergy between my you know, kind of most of my work, which was clinical, and then this little bit of classroom stuff. I did injure myself, and we didn't have a no policy. Didn't insist on power lift beds, and of course, I do suffer from people pleaser occasionally. And an event occurred where I chose to help someone when perhaps I shouldn't have. Now that challenged me because now it challenged me on lots of levels. Who was I? Was I a bedside nurse? Was I a teacher? The educator job came up and, well, it, it's a, you know, it was a no-brainer really not to take that on. And, look, I really enjoyed the educator role. As I was talking to Liam before the podcast, we were working with a hospital and maybe your hospital's the same, <laughs> where education, what a big priority. Mm. And so you sort of end up being the dog's body, don't you? Don't you, Liam? You end up being the jack of all trades and you're doing everything and you don't know, you're running around like a 
as we would say in Australia, like a blue-assed fly. I'll have to look that up. So, yeah, busy times. Once again, I used my autonomy and my intelligent curiosity. I did a, well, actually during the time I was working at the bedside, Mm. I did do a grad third in pal care because I think you do need graduate qualifications. I think that's a really hard lesson, and especially these days, because in Australia, graduate qualifications aren't free. They're actually quite expensive. But I think if you're young and you haven't got babies and you're, you know, you're not really in a committed space, get your graduate qualifications. And you, you can't think, oh, well, I did a qualify because I, I did do a qualification in occupational health and safety. Did I mention it? Because I was in an occupation self wrong. I thought I maybe I needed to know more about that. So I did. But I think you've got to be prepared to recognise that your base nursing Mm. skills are not always going to to suit you. You've got to be willing to do things. And, in fact, in my time as an educator, I did go back to uni. I actually did a graduate diploma in clinical education. And as hard as it was, um, I would have liked to have made it a master's, but I ran out of huff. And also ran out of money. It was starting to get a little bit high. And I was getting a bit, a little bit long in the tooth. As you can see, I'm only 36. And so I decided that I would pull out at a grad dip level. I had actually learned some skills that mm. have been really, um, and I don't regret that. I have moments when I go, oh, I should have done my master's. I had a moment there where I thought briefly I'd become a nurse practitioner. We have a team within specialist palliative care that goes out to aged care. And I thought about, taking up a role as an advanced practice nurse and doing my nurse practitioners. But really, partly my age and also just energy and just, you know, I've got a family, I'm looking after my mum, you know, they're realistically, it was going to kill me. So so I kind of went, if I had my time again, I probably would have gone that, that way. But, you know, hindsight. And also, you know, you have to think about your life as well. Like, you know, my kids, my youngest is, and I enjoy a fantastic relationship with her. And it's because I've had the opportunity to support her and grow with her. You can't be doing that if you're trying to do some qualification. So I think nursing's in a strange place. I think there's a lot of pressure to go down an academic road. And look, if that is your bag and you love academic writing and you love research, you just go, 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 go and do it young build on it, get your skills up, get qualified in it. There's lots of jobs, Mm. really good jobs for nurses in that space and it's just as valid as the bedside. If you love teaching and you love educating, you do need some clinical experience because otherwise your teaching lacks authenticity. That's what I think. That's just my personal opinion. And if you love being at the bedside and just looking after people and just being a damn good nurse, Mm. you know, not saying graduate qualifications aren't useful if they're going to build on your capacity to do that job, but to do them just for academic, don't Mm. bother. If you're not loving it, don't do it. And I think that that's really important. If you're not loving it, if there's not something in the role that's giving you joy, just go knock on another door. Right. There is an absolute workforce shortage. There is no reason not to tap into every opportunity. You know, have a crack. If you go as a casual, you know, you've got the luxury of, you know, shopping around or as an agency nurse, you've got the option to do that. So, you know, I don't regret any 
part of my little nursing career. And here I am, the subtitle of all of that. No, I love, and you know what? I think this is the first podcast where I've said like three words, which I love. I love. No, no, I love it. You know I'm a chatty cat. This is why I wanted to bring, like to connect with you, bring you to the, you know, our listeners, because I didn't know all of that about you. And we worked together for a, a couple of years in Canberra. And I love everything that you just talked about. And there are so many messages and acknowledgements of yourself through that journey. And like, pride and joy and excitement and elation and like learning and failure and all of the things yeah. all of the things that I feel like we're conditioned to today to think that are sloppy or messy or you know like you shouldn't do this you shouldn't do that you should jump around or you know mistakes are bad and in fact like what you've just shown us there is like this evolution of you as an incredible human I absolutely think you need to have a podcast of your own <laughs> I could listen to you all day or a storytelling or something. And that's one of the things that I really loved when we worked together was that you, um, I'm just showering you with praise here, not that you need it, but I just want to offer it because I feel so compelled to do that. I'll have a hot flash in a minute. I know, but when we used to work together and you would come and present to, our, I was the medical educator, you were working in palliative care and you would present to our people, like our nurses, they just ate it up. They loved it. And they loved it because of all of the things, because of these amazing experiences that you've created for yourself and the skill and the wisdom and the authenticity. And you are always just unapologetically you, like no one else. And I think it's funny that throughout that, you you mentioned a couple of times, I'm the oddball and I'm, the, and I'm like, I love that we can really focus and celebrate on being uniquely you. That is what's got you to where you are today. I think today... Well, you have to know yourself. You have to know yourself. You know, and and look, I think in life generally, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's your career, your relationships, whatever, Mm. you know, part of your inner journey has to be acknowledging who you are. And there'll always be someone who's better at something that you are. There's always going to be someone who's richer or, you know, more studied or more published or whatever. But at the end of the day, you are you. And if you can configure yourself out a little bit and, you know, it's a moving and and dynamic thing, you know, something that might have suited you at one point in your life might not suit later on. And you have to be honest with yourself sometimes. And that can be hard. Like I have to say, it was pretty hard to to sort of go, well, I'm I'm leaving the operating theatre. And I I mean, you know, they had taught me so much and and a part of me probably felt like I owed them. But Mm. at the same time, you know, I was getting anxious. I wasn't looking forward to going to work. Yeah. You know, what the hell? You know, yeah. why would like, you do that to yourself? They're like our early warning score, right? Those things, those signs and symptoms in our careers are like mm-hmm. our, we're not between the flags anymore. And yeah, I used to teach like, oh no, let's just stay in the job and try and like manage ourselves better. But actually I'm starting to see that these are signs and symptoms of maybe potentially misalignment in our career. And like, you should just follow that. Yeah. And I love the analogy of just knock on another door. There are like this week yes. on Seek. I love looking at Seek and seeing how many jobs are available because people come to me. And Can I tell you something, Liam? I look at Seek every week, yeah. every Sunday. It's yeah. one of my little hobbies because I think sometimes, well, maybe when you get to my age, you get locked into a job and it's like all of a sudden you've lost choice. It's mm. like you've lost your autonomy. It's like this is what I do. Da, 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 da. I look at the employment pages not because I'm unhappy but because I like to explore 
what else could I be doing? And would that give me more joy? And then, then the second part of it is, no, that wouldn't. I still choose to do what I'm doing now. So yeah. there's an active choice in being uh-huh. here. It's like in a relationship. Yeah. You know, you either choose to stay or you choose to go. You don't sit in that wiggle space. You're yeah. being miserable. There's no point. Right. And well, it is a relationship. Your work is a part of your life. You have to have a relationship with it. And, look, the other thing is you have to not have unrealistic expectations. No job is going to be fabulous all the time there's parts of my job like today today i had to make and send out 15 different certificates it's the most boring job and i cut and paste and cut and paste (laughs) and i'm thinking what the hell is my nursing career but you know it was half an hour in the day i had the pharmacist come by and ask me some questions i've had phone calls from people who really want to come and have a palliative care experience I played with some new software. I helped my colleague down on the ward. Like you have to be realistic. And I I do worry sometimes that generations, younger generations, have a bit of a Snapchat view of life that somehow or other you're going to look fabulous, you're going to be fabulous, and everything's going to be fabulous. You are going to have bad days. You are going to have days where you won't necessarily have rapport with your patients or you're working with a team that you're not particularly fond of. That's okay. You do have to be realistic. And frankly, it wouldn't matter if you were working in a library or working in, you know, Gucci or, you know, like it wouldn't matter. You would still have good days and bad days. So I think you do have to approach it with a sense of realism. But you're right. If you're chronically feeling joyless, and you're chronically feeling lonely, and you're chronically feeling like you're not you're, you're a round peg in a square hole, then that's not a nice place to be. And you know what? We're health professionals. So if your health is suffering because you're the round peg in the square hole, then you're not a very good health professional because they're not looking after yourself. I used to do that with quality of life because, you know, mm. in palliative care we talk mm. about quality of life. Then I'd say, what's my quality of life? I've bent over backwards to help all these people have a good quality mm. of life. What have I done for myself? Right. And sometimes that was a really good lesson to go, hang on a minute. Yeah. Take yeah. a chill pill, have a day off, do something different. I do think it's good that self-care, I don't know if internationally it's a thing, but I think self-care is really, I can't. Look, when I was growing up, nobody talked about it, but yeah. that was a Gen X thing. It was like. You know, you had your key around your neck, you went home, you made your own afternoon tea, you probably didn't talk to someone till tea time when your folks got home, you watched a bit of Dallas and you went to bed. You know, there really wasn't much going on. But I think, you know, that was not ideal. There were many of us that came out of our young years. I I think if I hadn't jumped into nursing, I would have needed the structure. I would have maybe uh, subconsciously I chose things that had structure. I chose nursing or the Navy because I think I felt very lost and very unsure of myself. And so I think, you know, there's a bit of, you know, generationally, I think we yeah. have to think about, well, where are we? What's real and what's not real? Yeah, I love that. And I love everything that you touched on there it was all about the connection to yourself and that deep and meaningful that you have internally, right? That sometimes we run away from because it's too difficult. It's in the two board basket. And really what I'm starting to lean into is really, I think nursing is actually about like building the foundation of clinical skills and building upon that. But it's also about building your mental and emotional health and wealth. It's building your mental and emotional Mm. capacity 
to new level, new devil, experience the new things as you move up and move throughout your career, whether you stay at the bedside. But it's like, I love what you said there. So many people need to hear that. I choose this path, right? We're never like just there and stuck and like it's happening to us. I choose this hard today. Like today it sucked. I chose this hard. This is my job. This is my life. I have a choice to change it. There are 20,000 jobs on Seek that I could apply for. I am not stuck. But I'm choosing to stay, right? And like, it's just that conscious kind of reframing and repatterning of our neural pathways. I love that you mentioned that. Now, before we I think you you get sloppy. You get sloppy. You do get sloppy, I think. I think we all kind of just sit in on, you know, sit on our, on our, you know, self and just kind of go, oh, too hard. I'd have to write an application. I'd have to do this. I'd have to do that. (laughs) But realistically, if you really wanted to do that, you would. Anyway, yeah. sorry, Liam. Yeah. No, I, and I think that that's, um, that's why we're here. If you're looking to apply, come and work with us. We can help you make that easy. But the the other side of that also is I think that because we're building, we're so hyper-stimulated in this world nowadays that our nervous systems are frazzled, right? Like we're just, a, we're fried with the short staffing and all of the things that are happening. So I think also that plays into where we get sloppy, right? And we're like, oh, it's too hard. But I wanted to touch on this role that you're in right now because, and, and the work that you're doing as we kind of wrap up, because I think that people wouldn't know that roles like this maybe exist, right? It's a super cool role that you're in. And I think like, yeah, people wouldn't understand or, or know that it exists. So tell us about what you're doing now in the palliative care space. So, and it will depend on the country that you're in, but in Australia, as there is in Canada and the UK and the States, there's a kind of an acknowledgement that palliative and end-of-life care is a significant part of healthcare. So in this country, our government has chosen to fund some national programs, which are all about trying to increase the skill set across the workforce, like not just in palliative care specialists, but in everybody that's working in healthcare. So I basically, I run the region's chapter part of this project. And my job is to find people who want to learn about palliative care, to give them a placement so they work alongside other disciplines and other health professionals to see how palliative care works. Mm. And then part of the placement is then thinking about, well, what sort of skills and what sort of things can they take back to their home team and grow? Mm. So that's part of the job. So PEPA, I'm really lucky because PEPA, the Program of Experience in a Palliative Approach, and now it's sister, the Indigenous Program of Experience in a Palliative Mm. Approach, has actually been around for 20 odd years. And the strengths behind this funded project is that the lady at the top, Professor Patsy Yates, has been really smart. When she started out developing this program from the very beginning, she thought about what's the evidence I can collect to demonstrate that this work helps. Not only that, but the project is structured. So there's learning guides, there's workshops, and there's the placements. She thought about how can this work stand out from other palliative care projects. I suspect she probably went to Canada and Ireland and other places and got some grand ideas because you see similar things. But what she had, she was actually originally a cancer nurse, Mm. but what she understood is that by gathering some quantitative data and going, if you take X number of people and you give them this experience, this is the outcome. 
And because consistently she's been able to measure that, she can go to the Commonwealth Government every three years and go, hey, can you fund this project? We're not the only project that's funded, but our project is specifically around that learning journey. So I feel really excited for me in an education space to have learning guides that I can give advice on, that I can use, that I can take pieces out of. So we had a, one of the guides is a disability learning guide and I did a workshop with some disability workers. So I pulled the case study out of the learning guide to show them a person with a disability travelling through the palliative care system. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you're looking at evidence, when you're fishing out stuff, when you're thinking about ways of sharing ideas with other people. I mean, there's a there's a big adult education component here, which I'm I'm very lucky because I've had a bit of education on that. Mm. But you know, looking at well, what is it that people want to learn and how do they learn the best and what's the resource that's going to get them there? I find the Pepper program really exciting because it forces people to have reflections. It forces people to do something with the placement. Mm. Not all of them do to be mm. honest. Mm. That'll change. Yeah. You're out there and you're doing the <laughs> placement. This one third of you are only doing something that's going to change. But it's great because like at the moment, I've got a doctor who works actually not in the ACT, but in a region that relies on the ACT for healthcare. She's so excited about building her palliative care skills and going back to her community and being able to do that role. That's fantastic because now I'll be looking at all of these learning resources and go, okay, what can I give this doctor, this GP, so that she can have the self-efficacy and the confidence to deliver the care to her community? The thing about education roles, I think you have to learn early and anyone out there that's in an education role, you know how when you do bedside nursing, and for those of you out there, you know, you're going to a bay or a ward or a bed and you see a patient and they're obviously having a really terrible time and they smell funny and they don't look great and you apply all your nursing magic and you relieve their suffering and you change their sheets and you wash their face and you get them a cup of tea and you get them to ring their mum or whatever it is that's going to get them into a happy space. And when you leave that space, you go, oh, that was exciting. I mean, you write in the notes, don't you? You go, oh, like a list of all the marvellous things you've just done. You don't get that in education. So you have to be prepared to know that, you you know, like I've just went and taught, you know, 15 disability workers, but I kind of secretly hope that trickles out and it happened for me Yeah. the other day. So I was supporting the clinical team with this particularly complex patient. He's got mental health issues. He's got a head and neck cancer. And I went out there with the palliative care nurse who was quite new at this. And we met with the mental health nurse. And I said to the mental health nurse, I said, you're doing a great job. And he goes, don't you remember me? And I went, oh, well, didn't. But anyway, he (laughs) said, oh, no, I I did a pepper placement. And so even though he's working in a mental health role, because he'd actually come and done a placement, he was now able to take some of what he'd learned and actually use it to care for this client. Mm. So that made me really excited. So you just have to see, you have to see wins in a different way. And and I, I'll be honest, in the probably the first maybe year, two years of having an education role, I was beginning to wonder what I was really doing. But, you know, you just have to realise that nursing has the, we have the lens 
to to do a whole range of things, whether it's gathering evidence, whether it's making information easier for patients and families to understand, whether it's developing tools to give our colleagues some skills. We have that lens. It's part of how we're trained. And we also have the, hopefully, I think nurses have this kind of there's nothing too dumb or too smelly or too scary. Like we really have, well, I mean, I'm, I speak for myself maybe, but I have a bit of a boots and all kind of thinking. It doesn't matter what I'm, what sort of client or what sort of clinical setting that we're looking at, there's always a way of, of kind of getting in there and, and pulling out the key bits and helping that person. And I think nursing has that uniqueness in that we're not just science-driven we're also allowed a little bit of intuition and there's a little mm. bit of art there. You know, we're allowed to kind of go, mm, you know. It's you know, like you've holistic. Had that, you've <laughs> had that medication, but I, I'm sensing you're still not feeling right. Is it, What else can I, is there something yeah. else you think that might help? Oh, some ginger beer. I've got near that in the kitchen. I'll get the warty to go down to the vending machine. You know, like you've actually come up with something that, you know, nobody else in the team would potentially have the lens to do, you know? I love that. It is, and it's the small stuff. And I'm sure, like, we definitely need to do a whole episode on palliative care and, like, like helping people die better and, and have, you know, better. I'd like to. And, and I'm, look, I'm, I'm more than happy to do a topic focus. And, and I, think, I think one of the things that would be really exciting is I'm just wondering if the people who've died, if they've got some fears, some mm -hmm. worries, some things maybe that's happened to them around patients dying when they've died of a life-limiting illness, yeah. share them with Liam because what we can do is we can then use that as a as a kind of a, a, a springboard yeah. to be able to support you. And I know, you know, you mentioned one of the, people today is from Korea and I don't know what the palliative care setting is in Korea and I rather suspect there's probably not a lot going on. So, you know, each of you are going to have unique kind of experiences and unique kind of concerns and I'd really yeah. like you to, if you can be, you know, yeah. motivated to let Liam know because then we can add that to the next um, platform because I am very passionate about dying. Yeah. Yeah. We all deserve to die feeling safe. We used to talk about good deaths, and I think that's a bit because there's some deaths that aren't good. But I think everybody deserves to feel safe. Everybody deserves to feel cared for. Mm. And whether that's just someone asking, you know, using their name or making sure that we're, you know, acknowledging and validating some of the mm. anxieties of peers, that's what palliative care is about. You, you don't have to become a whiz on opiate rotation. Right. And infant conversion and all that. Yeah. It's actually about putting yourself, well, that empathy thing. Mm. I'm sure you've seen it, Liam. There's a wonderful video from Bren Brown about empathy. If you go to YouTube, Bren Brown, B-R-E-N-E, -E, Brown, and it's an empathy video. Yeah. It's very good. But it really teaches us that that sometimes as nurses, we just need to settle down, mm. stop thinking about the biological markers, and actually looking at the person. Yeah, I love that. We, that. we talk a lot about being basic, basic, quote, unquote. It makes you advanced, right? Like we talk about that a lot here and like let's, that, that it's those things that really matter. It's knowing, yeah. you need to know your patient and know that 
they adore music and that in their last days, like they would love nothing more than to just have some music playing in the background. The simplest of little things like the ginger beer or just like, you know, wiping their brow, like whatever it might be. You're like, you are the guru of all this stuff. So we definitely need to book in another time and explore this. But I'm so privileged to have shared your story today with so many people. We have people in Korea listening because it's been in the top 100 in Korea. For Hello, Koreans. Hello. And <laughs> Australia and all of the places, you're all welcome here. But we need to lock this in for an episode two where we dive into palliative care. So as Rachel said, if you want to learn something specific about palliative care or you've had experiences, because I think one thing that you touched on before we came on this call that we don't talk about enough is that these experiences can be traumatic for us as humans, right? Absolutely. Who would have thought? And, you know, we can rationalise them all we want with our minds, but we are beings and yeah. we have visceral responses. Yeah. And, you know, like I said in the, maybe before we were recording, our thoughts, our, our beliefs and our values around chronic illness, around death and dying, they actually influence how we think and then that influences how we make our clinical decisions. Yeah. And that then influences perhaps someone's last days. And, you know, we celebrate a birth because it's magical and for the most part, well, mm. it depends on your mum it's a bit messy. But you know what I mean? It's a one-off moment. The birth of a child is a one-off moment. The death of a person, the end of someone's life, it's a one-off moment. And we're often, as nurses, the ones that are privileged to be there and to be with their loved ones and to actually acknowledge some of the stuff that's going on for them. And really, it, it, it's not rocket science. I did say I'm not the smartest person in the world. It's not rocket science. It really isn't. Yeah. You know? Well, well, we're going to keep people hanging for the next episode where people can hear <laughs> about the, the palliative care approach that's not rocket science. Love your work. I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences today because I know that there is just one person where you said earlier, I just want to have that trickle effect. Like you just want evidence of that. And there's somebody today that's been inspired to pursue a palliative care career that's maybe in endoscopy that thinks palliative care is not available to them, right? Because they're, you know, that's just what we've kind of been conditioned to believe is true. So thank you for sharing that. We will include all of Rachel's kind of like, like the pepper program, stuff like that in the show notes so that there's acknowledgement yeah. of that. One question before we do leave, if somebody's like, oh my God, the pepper program, I really want to do this. How do I do this? Can you tell us briefly, like, is it in, it's across Australia. How do people connect with that? Well, there's a website. There's a national website, PEPA. Don't put two P's in it. You'll get Peppa Pig. Not helpful. But PEPA, it's a website. There's there's actually a learning management system attached to it. So there's lots of resources. There's contact details. Everyone in Australia will have someone in their region. So Western Australia's got a manager, Victoria, blah, blah, blah. And the website will lead you to wherever you're living, Sometimes, like in my case, the ACT is and it's in the middle of New South Wales. So sometimes I have health professionals that sort of work around my area. Mm -hmm. So if you're in Yass, Goulburn or some of those places, look me up because I'm happy to do that. But PEPA, one P, you'll find us. And look, really, if you want to Google Patsy Yates and really see a nurse who started out as a cancer nurse, as a distinguished professor, like she is like the queen of palliative care in this country. <laughs> she has achieved so much and real inspiration to see as a nurse, you can do anything if you want it. 
you know, I just got goosebumps. Yeah, you can do whatever yeah, yeah. you yeah, want. You really can. And look, sometimes it'll be scary. Sometimes mm. you'll go, what the heck am I doing? But that's life. I love it. Awesome. No, yeah, you can do anything. And as we always sign off this episode, stay safe and stay curious. As Rachel said, intellectually curious. Knock on those doors and we will see you in the next episode. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I'm so privileged that you spent your time with us here today. Hey, can I ask a favour? If you know someone that would benefit from this podcast episode, please share it with them. The more you share, the more we get in front of amazing nurses and we're able to help them see that nursing on their terms across their career is totally possible for them. So I'd love if you could do that. Now, I will see you in the next episode next week. Until then, let's make this year the year that you nurse on your terms. Are you ready? Let's do it.